Psalm 119, in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands this evening so that you can not only hear the Word of God tonight, but also be able to read along with your own eyes. In Psalm 119, we remember that it's, it's an expression of the psalmist's love for the Word of God. And we would be thankful for all 176 verses if it were merely that. But the psalmist is not only expressing his love for the Word of God to the Lord in this psalm, but he also lists the reasons why he loves the Word of God and why it's so meaningful to him. And for those of you who are new with us tonight, the Psalm 119 is made up of 22 sections, each one corresponding to a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The first section begins with the equivalent of A in the Hebrew alphabet, and the second section, the letter B in the Hebrew alphabet. And every line within those sections begins with that letter. It is a supernatural miracle on that level alone. But the greatest value of Psalm 119 is as we grow in the Lord and we recognize that the same things that the psalmist was thankful to the Lord for using the Word to accomplish in his life, we begin to recognize them one by one as the I felt that, I've experienced that, I know what that feels like and I'm thankful in the same way. And so a beautiful beautiful psalm. And we've been pulling just one point out of each of the 22 sections just to give us kind of an overview of why the psalmist loved the Word of God so much as he did. And we pick things up in verse uh, 145. The psalmist says, I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O God. Do you ever cry out to the Lord with your whole heart? <laughs> You're fully engaged. Hear me, O Lord. That's what he wanted to say, my whole heart. Lord, hear me. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you. Save me, and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate upon your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O oh Lord, revive me according to your justice. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O oh Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. We'll take particular note of verse 151. You are near, O oh Lord. The Word of God reminds me of the nearness of God in my life during times of trouble. Why? Because in times of deep trial, sometimes it can feel as if God is a million miles away from me, at least in the city next door. I'm not talking about Stockton. He doesn't go there. Turlock. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But sometimes you just feel that way. And the problem is, we talked a little bit this morning how this whole cultural shift that's gone on really within a generation in the United States of America where people have gone from thinking with their brains to thinking with their feelings. People are being driven by their feelings. What they feel is right. What they feel they should do. What they feel is happening rather than sitting down and looking at things with logic and understanding, and these are the facts, and let's look at it from this vantage point. And so there can be this, these situations where we feel as if we can begin to come to conclusions about God, conclusions about our Christianity, conclusions about God's faithfulness to His Word on the basis of what we feel 
rather than on the basis of the facts of our situation and the facts of what God promises to be, and that is to be present with us in the midst of our troubles. And so the psalmist's circumstances, we would all recognize them. He's surrounded, he tells us, by wickedness and by wicked people. The problems are so great, he tells us, that he cannot sleep. That's a miserable thing to be, is to be in a situation where the circumstances are so hard, they're so dominating in our life that they not only attempt to rob us during the day of, of any joy and any peace, but then they begin to intrude into the nighttime. And we find now we can't even find the ability to sleep. And that's a terrible, difficult place to be. And the psalmist find him, found himself in that place. But in the midst of it, he remembers that the Lord is near and he was remembered that the Lord is near because of the Word of God's instruction, the Word of God speaking to the fact that God is always near. And we need to be reminded of that in the midst of great difficulty in our lives, that God is near us and the Lord, God's Word is faithful to remind us of that. Jesus said, And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. Isn't that wonderful? He's with us every day, all day. Whatever we feel or we don't feel, He never ceases to be faithful to Himself and to His Word. The Bible says concerning uh, Jesus toward us, He Himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He never does. He's always present in our lives. And I think that's wonderful to know. And when trouble draws near, he is near still. The thing about the Lord is that not only is he present during times of difficulty, but the Bible says that he's a very active, present person in these times of difficulty. I like Psalm 46 in this regard. God is our refuge and strength, a very present presence in our time of trouble. No, it doesn't say that. I would settle for that, but it says more than that a very present help in time of need. Psalm 139, the psalmist cries out to the Lord, You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Your right hand shall hold me. So sometimes God feels very, very far away. God, where are you? God, you seem like you're a million miles away. His right hand is holding us. Now, Karen and I, my wife, our children are long grown. And, um, and our grandchildren are growing up very, very quickly. They're, they're still kiddos in my eyes, but, and they're moving along towards teens. And, and Amy's going to be there in a couple of years. And you, you all know the Lord was supposed to be back long before that to clear us out. And I remember on a number of years ago on a trip to Israel, had a, the luxury. One of the greatest things about a trip to Israel is being to Israel. But one of the things that I love is to be able to spend an extended period of time in night, morning, noon, and night with a group of people from this church. And we get to know each other in a way that in real life, none of us has the luxury time-wise to do it. In heaven, we will but not this side of heaven. And part of that trip, because our family was on that trip, I got to sometimes walk the different sites holding on to the hands of one of my grandchildren when they were especially small. And we cover this kind of rough terrain and slippery terrain and different things. And as long as the surface was nice and smooth, I would let them hold on to my finger and we would just walk along. And I didn't really do a, a hard grip on their hand because there was no need to. But as soon as we got to a street or as soon as we got to a slippery surface or something that might be wet, boom, the papa clamp on the hand, holding on to them, a very present help in time of need. And the Lord says He holds us. He holds our hand. We say, God, where are you? He's got our, our hand is right in His hand. That's how close that he is. And we need the Word of God to remind us of the fact that he is that 
close. Jesus is a very present help through this pilgrimage and on into the glory of heaven. We're never alone in this life. And I really need the word of the Lord to remind me of my Savior's presence as we're navigating through life in this world, where even for us as Christians, as much as we know the Lord and we know the Word of God, sometimes the trials become so great we can begin to lose sleep over them. And the thing that comforts us is knowing that He is near, very near, and He is near to help. And it's the Word of God that reminds us of that. And then in this next section, beginning in verse 153, Consider my affliction and deliver me. For I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Greater your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies. Yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. I'd like us to take note of that verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. And the word of God reveals to us the way of salvation. And it reveals to us the way of salvation for all men, even the wicked. And it talks about salvation in a physical sense in the psalm, but it applies equally to our spiritual salvation. The way of salvation is made known to us through the Word of God. You take the Word of God out of human history. You take this God-breathed book out of human history, and we have... Not only do we not know the way of salvation, we don't even know that a salvation exists. And it's the Word of God that makes known to us the the way of salvation. I think this is perhaps one of the greatest things that the Word of God does. It introduces us to the Savior. It introduces us to the Lord Jesus. You know, the worst consequence of wickedness in a human life It isn't the physical consequences that the wicked bear for their sin. It isn't the emotional and mental damage that the wicked do to themselves emotionally and mentally because of their wickedness. It's not the addictions. It's it's not the nightmares that they have or the regret that they one day have or the incarcerations or all of the various consequences of practicing wickedness in this world. The very worst consequence of a wicked life is it keeps me from the salvation that God offers to mankind. And it isn't that the wicked cannot be saved, but it is that their own wickedness keeps them from the scriptures that speak of God's salvation. How many people have you witnessed to concerning the gospel and the things of the Lord, and people have rejected it on the basis of a careful study of the scriptures and the claims of Christ and the light of Old Testament prophecies? Ha! Never happens, does it? You scratch just one little sixteenth of an inch into this book or below the surface of this book and you're going to become a Christian because the Holy Spirit is going to use it to bring us to a faith in Christ. But people don't come to know Christ because their wickedness keeps them away from the book that would teach them of their need to be saved and of the salvation that is found in Christ. And the Bible declares that the Lord desires to save everyone from one end of the Bible to the other. Genesis to Revelation, it speaks of God's desire to save mankind. Sometimes people look at the Bible and they say it's a hopelessly complex book. You can never understand it. Can never be understood. Don't tell me you understand it. Could never be understood. And yet the Bible is a very, very simple book. The book is just made up of three very principal things. It is the record of the creation of man, the fall of man, 
and God's redemption or salvation of man. The creation of man in verses chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, the rest of the book is God's story of his plan for the salvation of mankind from that fallen condition. That's why the volume of the book testifies of Christ. That's why the whole book is about him, because he is the Savior. God desires to forgive and he desires to save every single man, woman, and child in this world. The Bible says, as Peter wrote, that God isn't willing that any should perish. God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Every single person that ends up in judgment and ultimately for eternity in an eternal lake of fire, they will have gotten themselves there against God's will and purpose for their life. He's not willing that anyone should perish. Someone can think, well, what's God's will for my life? First thing, that you're saved. (laughs) That's His will. If He had His will in every human life, if human will was not involved in the decision, everyone would be saved. Because God's not willing that any should perish. But man has a responsibility related to salvation, to choose or to reject the salvation that Christ has provided. And so God is desiring to save every man, woman, and child in this world, longs to do it. He'll do it in your life tonight if you'll allow him to do that. That is the heart of God. And the whole book is written in order to reveal his heart and his desire to save us. And the psalmist declares what keeps so many people from coming to know about God's desire to save and the message of salvation found in his word and its wickedness and its sin. That's what it is. That's the greatest tragedy of wickedness and sin is it keeps me from learning about God's salvation and from accepting it into my own life. The Bible teaches that no matter how great our wickedness has been, how great the wickedness can be in our lives, even tonight, if we'll turn to Him, He will forgive me and He will save me. I would never believe it except God said it in His Word. It's a funny thing because our country does have a Judeo-Christian ethic and a very, very strong Christian heritage. It's just absolute nonsense and propaganda to say that this nation doesn't have that. That's just... You see, people say that and they're just lying. That's all there is to it. There's no denying that, that great fact. The thing that we have to be careful of, even though there is a move away, strong move away from the things of the Lord all over the world and in our nation included, that's why I'm praying for revival, a great awakening in these last days. But this whole... um, I've lost my train of thought here for a moment. Oh, this, we, here we are in this nation and a person can hear the gospel and hear the gospel and hear the gospel and hear the gospel and God's plan of salvation. And then pretty soon they can almost become kind of uh, bitter against the person sharing it with them. And it's a funny thing. The first time I hear the gospel, I'm either going to accept it or I'm going to reject it. If I reject it, I harden my heart to do so. I hear it the second time. If I reject it again, I must further harden my heart to reject it. And on and on and on it goes until a person's heart is so hard against the gospel that now they think it's a problem with God or some kind of intellectual problem that they have with Christianity and they don't realize that their own heart has become hardened. When in fact... Every single human being, upon hearing for the very first time that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, should be filled with instant awe. And then say to the person who is delivering that gospel to them, 
Are you sure that's true for me? Are you sure that you are offering something to me that God will be true to? So humbled by the privilege of coming to know this God and to be forgiven of our sins, to receive a new nature and live a different kind of life. And yet the love for wickedness can grow so strong in a human life that they lose all awe related to God's offer and even harden their heart against it. If you sit here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, I don't care if you've been to church or all your life, are you a Christian? Are you born again as Jesus said we need to be born again? Put our faith in Jesus. Holy Spirit comes in us. It's a spiritual birth. We're born again. A new nature comes inside of our life. And now we begin a relationship with God. And if you understand that gospel and God's offer and you can have that come into your mind and assess that with some form of moral, intellectual, and mental sanity, grab tonight as your opportunity to put your faith in Him. You will never be thinking more clearly than you are tonight because if you reject Him again tonight, then next time you won't be thinking as clearly as you were tonight. It's a dangerous thing to harden a human heart related to the things of the Lord. The beauty here of the Scriptures making us realize that God is willing to save any of us, willing to save uh, all of us, but we must not allow wickedness to keep us from God's salvation. Praise the Lord. The Word of God gives us revelation concerning the most important subject in life, and that is our salvation. And then in verse 161, princes persecute me, he said, without a cause. But my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I'll be okay. I was just enjoying that. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace of those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I love your salvation and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds a great treasure. That's how... The psalmist looked at the Word of God. He rejoiced in the Word of God in the same way that one rejoices when they've come upon a great treasure. Now, coming upon a great treasure is a young boy's dream. I can't speak for girls. I've never been a girl. I don't know what you dream about. In fact, I don't know anything about you. (laughs) The Bible says, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. It doesn't say dwell with your wife according to understanding. I don't understand her at all. But we can come to know our wives and be of some marginal help as a result. But one of the dreams of a little boy is to come upon a great treasure. I'll tell you, I feel it every time I get on the Pirates of the Caribbean. I know the dips are coming, ooh, and the whole thing, and don't get wet, the water's going to slosh. But every time I go, and why those pirates and their skeletons, and they've got that gold and silver and treasure piled as high as the room. That was a boyhood dream that you would have so much money that you could dive into it and throw it up into the air and not have to even bother counting it or anybody taking it away from you. To have a treasure. I remember my twin brother and I and a friend, we had been told that at the end of every rainbow there's a pot of gold. Now listen, maybe it was just because we were so poor growing up and we had a lot of time on our hands. 
But I remember one time it rained and we were going to figure this thing out. And so we saw where the rainbow went. It moves. (laughs) Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So we began, and the discussion was talking about how we were going to divide the pot of gold. In all earnestness, I mean, we're just little kids. All earnestness, we're going to break it up three ways, and all of the candy we were going to buy with all of this gold and, and, and everything. I remember one time I was walking uh, in a neighborhood in Napa where we were living at the time, probably seven years old or something, six or seven, and it had rained, and I was walking to somebody's house, and there was a dollar bill in a puddle. I can feel it to this day. A dollar bill, not a dime, not a nickel, a whole dollar bill. I had found a treasure. See, a a treasure is relative. A dollar was a treasure. A dollar could buy you a hundred pieces of one-cent candy, and that was significant candy in those days. It could buy you 25-cent candy bars, and for as young as I was, you could hardly hold 20 candy bars the size that they were in both hands. I thought I had struck the lottery related to that. It's one of the dreams about as a kid or a young boy is finding some kind of a treasure. And it helped prepare me for the excitement of the find that's associated with the Word of God. What a joy the experience is in reading the Word of God when you read a passage that you've read 15 times before, 5 times before, 100 times before, and you read it this time and click. There you see it. That's the point he's making. That's the thing that God wants to speak to my heart today. And the impact upon the spirit of a born-again Christian is like you have just stumbled on to a great spiritual treasure. And the Word of God does that kind of a thing. You get so excited, just like somebody that's stumbled upon a physical treasure. And when the Holy Spirit does that in our lives through the Word of God, it's one of the richest experiences of life. Now, all treasure enriches the finder, and that is true also of the Word of God. Just as a physical treasure makes a person rich materially, the treasure of God's Word makes us fabulously wealthy spiritually. Every exposure to the Word of God makes me richer spiritually. Every single time I expose myself to it. Every time we sit down and we study it, we leave richer than when we came. We leave with a little bit. We've pulled a little bit of the treasure out of the book and it's been inserted into our daily life. I'll tell you, the spiritual treasure that's found in the Word of God is as close as a Bible and a chair. To the Word of God is a great treasure chest. It's one of the great images of the Word of God in all of the Bible to me. I love the image of the fact that the Word of God is a mirror. It reveals ourselves to ourselves in a way that nothing else in the world does. And I'm thankful for that. But I'm thankful for the imagery that it is a treasure as well. Everywhere you turn into it, it's a treasure. Whether it's the law of Moses, whether it's the major prophets, the minor prophets, the poetic books, the gospels, the book of Acts, the epistles, everywhere there's a treasure to be found in the Word of God. This is one of the reasons that I love when I'm going to be gone from the church. I never love being gone from the church. You have no idea how little I love that. I love being here. But when I'm gone and I come back and I'm able to hear where in the world did the guest speakers, where did the Holy Spirit lead them in the Word of God to share? 
when I go to a conference or I go to another church and I sit down and I have my Bible and the person that's going to teach the Word of God comes up into the pulpit to do that and I wonder, here is 66 books filled with treasure, unimaginable treasure. Where is he going to take us in that treasure chest? And it's a beautiful feeling, a beautiful way to look at the Word of God. And it's a true way to look at the Word of God, the priceless treasures that are found in the Bible. And those treasures that are given to us through the Word of God, they're never taken away by the, you know, flightiness and the uncertainty of the world all around us. All other treasure can be gone in an instant. Verse 169, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let my hand become, let your hand become my help. For I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and it shall praise you and let my, your judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commandments. I'd like us to look specifically at verse 172. My tongue shall speak of your word for all your commandments are righteousness. And so the word of God is a source for healthy speech. And you notice in that verse 172, he, he declares three things essentially. He says, my tongue shall speak. All of us are going to speak in life. That's, there's no question about that. Everybody is going to speak. The greater question is, what are we going to speak when we do speak? And the greater question for the child of God is, what will be the effect of my speech upon others when I uh, do speak the effect of it upon those that are around me. And there is a desire on the part of the psalmist and on our part as a child of God that my speech would never be used to harm people, that my speech would never be used to create problems or trials for people, that, but my speech would always be used to heal them and to bless them. And so we ask ourselves, is it possible for our speech to... Be, have that kind of an influence inside the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ. And the psalmist reveals it in the next phrase. He said, my tongue shall speak of your word. And our speech becomes something that is healing and edifying and beneficial as it's dominated and it's fashioned and directed by the word of God. Then I can be confident that I'm doing people good through the gift of speech. And why is he so confident concerning the Word of God? He tells us further, for all your commandments are righteousness. That is, they're always right, and thus they only do good to those who hear us. Imagine if the Bible were taken away from us as a child of God, having experienced it, having been able to speak of the Lord, to speak of His faithfulness in our life, to speak of our salvation story, our testimony concerning Him, to quote His Word in various situations. What if the Word of God was taken away from us and here we have the capacity for speech, but we can never use it to magnify God or reveal God through the declaration of His Word? Who would want to talk again? I'll tell you, we've been spoiled as Christians once we have used this organ, this gift of speech, and the way that God intends speech to be used, if that were taken away from us, none of us would ever want to open our mouths again because it's such a great step down in the use of language. What a blessing it is to be able to help people and to bless them by speaking the Word of God into their lives. One of the great things about teaching through the Bible and um, the, the uh, st sticking to the passage and not 
taking a passage from the Bible and then launching off into all of my ideas or all my thoughts on life or all these kind of things is that at the end of a Sunday I can put my head down on a pillow and if I have been true to the, the Word of God on that Sunday, I know I didn't harm a single person. Now, some of the things that I may have said may have been hard for people to hear, may have uh, upset people, may have enraged people, but I never did them any harm. I only spoke to them what was right. And now it's up to God to make much of that in their life. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to through the years that have come into this place and they said, the first time I heard you, I was so furious at you, what you were saying from the Word of God. But they came back. Only God can bring you back. Not everybody comes back, but some come back. And then they began to listen, and they were a little less furious. And then a hundred years later, they send you a box of C's candy at Christmas time. We never do anybody any harm. It can split a family right down the middle. It can end a relationship on the short term in an instant by declaring God's truth about a given situation or about a person in a situation. But we never do them harm. And I can live with that. I would rather have people respect me for having told them the truth and to know that I did not damage them in any foundational or fundamental way than to speak the things. I know how to flatter. I know how to manipulate. I know how to do all of those things. But I would rather run the risk of all of this other difficulty and damage than tell them the things that they need to, they, that they want to hear and withhold the truth from them and walk away and say, I harmed them in that situation because I didn't tell them what the Word of God has to say about that. And so what a wonderful thing it is to be able to have the Word of God and have that be the thing that dominates our speech. And, of course, in order for that to happen, the Word of God has to be being sown into our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Sometimes you go along and somebody, somebody will get angry. Boom! Some angry uh, thing will come out of their mouth as a Christian or uh, some slang for a swear word or a swear word itself. Oh, boy, I bet i got to watch my speech. No, no, the problem's a little deeper than that. The problem is the heart. That came out of something that's in my heart. And to just sit down with the Lord and say, Lord, I don't like what came out of my mouth right there. I don't like what it did to the other person, and I don't like how it marred my testimony and my witness for you. And so show me what is going on in my heart that that came out of. And now I want to replace that with what your word says related to that situation in my heart. Or sometimes it's just a failure to sow enough of the word of God into our heart that it's the dominant influence in our heart. Whatever is in our heart is going to come out. That's just the way it is. It's the spiritual thermometer. It's the spiritual... The, the great revelation of my spiritual health at the moment is what comes out of my mouth because it reveals to me and others the condition of my heart and the importance of pouring the Word of God into my heart and into my heart so that what comes out of my mouth is truth that comes from God's Word. Let me recap for you the lessons that we pulled out. You could pull out so many other things. You could make it your own 22 things that you would pull out of the psalm. These are the 22 things that I pulled out of the psalm that the Word of God does in the life of a child of God. In section number one, the Word of God produces a blessed life. Never fails to do that. Number two, the Word of God produces a clean life. It can cleanse a young man's way. Number three, God's Word provides us with 
a friendly voice during times of human rejection. God never gives us the silent treatment. People will do that. People will be fickle. God will never be fickle or go silent on us. And he will always be a friend to us, even if the whole rest of the world is rejecting us. Number four, God's word revives and it strengthens. In other words, it is the source of spiritual strength in in the Christian life. In terms of the meat, the Holy Spirit gives us power as well. The Word of God, number five, keeps us free from covetousness by reminding us of eternity. Oh, how important that is. Number six, obedience to God's Word brings liberty always. Number seven, God's Word provides us with an incomparable hope and a comfort in the midst of the afflictions of this world. A word of comfort that... Only God can provide. Those situations, as we spoke about, that occur in life where no human voice can comfort us. Only God's voice can comfort us at that moment. And the Word of God does that. And then, number eight, God's Word provides us with a standard by which we can identify godly friends or good companions, friends who are worthy of the title of friend. Number nine, the Word of God is the source of good judgment and knowledge, uh, the divine definition of right and wrong and good and bad and wisdom, and it spares us of unnecessary affliction by just simply being obedient to His Word. Number ten, the Word of God provides us with needed perspective during God's chastening in our lives. It's not the end of the world. He's just training us to become more spiritual and more effective in our life and our ministry. Number 11, the Word of God provides hope and comfort and needed perspective in the midst of persecution. Number 12, the Word of God provides us with a word that's settled in heaven, doesn't change. God never says, oops, related to His Word. Oops, I didn't see the United States of America coming. Or, oops, I didn't see you being born. I'll have to change everything. Now, His Word never, ever needs to be changed or uh, updated. It's settled in heaven. The Word of God provides me, number 13, with a pure, safe, sweet place to rest our minds, to harbor our minds in this fallen world. It provides us with safe, sweet sources of meditation for our thinking this side of heaven Number 14, the Word of God provides a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Number 15, the Word of God produces a healthy fear of God in us, which steers us away from the judgment that is coming upon the wicked. And judgment is coming upon the wicked. And the Word of God warns us away from what is set aside for judgment. And then number 16, the Word of God makes us rich. 17, the Word of God gives light and understanding to the simple. It gives all of us equal access to a great life, this side of heaven, a spiritual life. Number 18, the Word of God provides us with the truth. Number 19, the Word of God reminds me, as we saw tonight, of the nearness of God in the midst of trouble. Number 20, the Word of God reveals to us the way of salvation, the way of salvation even for the wicked. Number 21, the Word of God is a great treasure. And number 22, the Word of God is a source for healthy speech. And this is what the Word of God produces in the life of a child of God. Wow. And then tragically, in our hour in church history, This is what you rob people of if you do not teach the Word of God in a church. And the move away from the teaching of the Word of God, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is so strong today. People, they they don't know what they're doing. Leaders do not know what. They don't know the damage they are doing to Christians. You rob Christians of just those 22 things that the Word of God uniquely 
does in a human life, how can they have any chance of standing in the darkness of this world? And that's why it's important in all churches, in healthy churches. You'll see, you know the crazy thing? Well, that's why when you go into a church, as we endeavor to do, and there's a great emphasis on the Word of God. And you think, well, that's just that's kind of what they do. That's what the church, they have to do. The Bible tells them, and that's just the, the way that they do it, and they've got to fill the hour and a half somehow, don't they? And that's not what it's about. Not for a true shepherd of God's people, there's the recognition that this and this is what the Word of God and the Word of God alone does in a human life. And what pastor who loves their flock would ever rob that flock of even one of those 22 things, let, rob, let alone rob them of all of those things. But it speaks to us individually, and it speaks of the fact that this is what we deny ourselves if we fail to feed ourselves on the Word of God and fail to nurture a devotional life with God that is centered upon the Word of God. This is what we are robbing ourselves of, none of which we can afford to rob ourselves of. The Word of God, this is what it does in a human life, and if we neglect it, this is what we are robbing people of. And again, the... You know, the whole pressure today on pastors, and I love pastors, and I feel sorry for pastors. I don't know how God's just going to have to blind people and make them spiritually cuckoo and make them be pastors. The pressure that is on pastors to perform, to be charismatic, to grow, it's, it, it's, it is nickels and noses like no time in the almost 30 years that I've been a pastor. The bottom line is the bottom line of the world so often in the church rather than just being faithful to God. And it's killing. It, it, that crushes and kills the best because the best will never be faithful to God's call on the basis of nickels and noses. But you force that kind of person out to then start a new work where they can just listen to God and be obedient to God's call upon their lives. But the immense pressure that is on people to do a song and a dance, to move away from the Word of God, to keep all of this exciting, and again, the joy and the blessing of the pastor, at least for me and I know for all of them that I know, is that at the end of a Sunday we can go home and say, we did good to people by pointing them to God, number one in the service, pointing them to God in the worship of the Lord through song, but then also also pointing them to God in the study of His Word. The Word of God, if we will but teach it and expose people to it, it will do all of this and more. And in the light of all of this, Uh, I think of a story that I once heard where there was a churchgoer who wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper. It's always dangerous now they blog. At least in the newspaper you had to sign your name. So he wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper and he complained that it made no sense to go to church every Sunday. He declared, I've gone for 30 years now. And in that time, I've heard something like 3,000 sermons, but for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time, and the pastors are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. Well, that started quite a controversy in the letters to the editor section of the newspaper, much to the delight of the editor. They love that kind of thing. So it went on for weeks, back and forth, back and forth, people arguing and all, and then finally the letter came in that was the clincher. And a man wrote, and he said, I've been married for 30 years now. And in that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu of a single one of those meals. But I do know this, that they all nourished me and they gave me strength. 
that I needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me these meals, I would be physically dead today. And likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. And it's the truth. What's the point that you're making there? The point is, it is doing a work. The Word of God is. And it is doing a good and a necessary thing in our lives spiritually even when we don't recognize that it is the necessity and the importance of the Word of God and how thankful I am for Psalm 119 that speaks of the uh, psalmist's great love for the Word of God and the reasons for which he loved the Word of God. Well, we'll stop there tonight and we'll uh, now take some time to enjoy uh, the Lord's Supper this evening. So if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we will prepare to serve that. And meanwhile, perhaps the rest of us could uh, turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. In introducing the Lord's Supper, Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And we're told, and he, that is Jesus, took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Now, the psalmist wrote Psalm 119 with a limited revelation of the old covenant the greatest thing the single greatest thing that the word of God does in a human life is it reveals the savior to us not just the way of salvation but the nature of Christ his love for us the fact that he is for us his faithfulness to us his commitment to us the religious leaders came to Jesus and they were hassling as they were prone to do. And Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. You think that salvation is found in doing and keeping the law and the prophets and all. He said, but these are they which testify of me. The whole law and the prophets have all spoke of Christ. And that's the great revelation of the scriptures. I was watching an interview on a YouTube clip that was sent to me of a pastor who was interviewing a Jewish believer. And the, uh, and the pastor asked the Jewish believer, well-known in our circles, this Jewish Christian, and asked him, um, what, would you, what would you say to Christians who are trying to witness to Jews? He said, don't preach to them out of the New Testament. They don't acknowledge that as the Word of God. There's no need to do that. One day they will. But at the moment, they don't. He says, preach to them out of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. He said, go to Isaiah 7. Go to Isaiah 11. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. He said when he was 19 years old, it was the first time that he had read Isaiah chapter 53, and all of the lights went on for him as a Jew, that Jesus wasn't just a new covenant kind of thing that happened over here, but the whole book was about Christ. And so the wonder of the Scriptures is that it reveals him to us, that it testifies of Christ. And so tonight as we partake of the symbols of his body and of his blood, hold the bread as it comes to you, and then later when the cup comes to you, we'll pray together and we will partake together. But let's do this in remembrance of him.